I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter. More specifically, we are discussing chapters 9 through 13 this week. Now, before we get into that, Heidi, I feel like you should probably just tell the listeners what's happening in your life for the next two weeks. Like, just make them jealous or, you know, that, or, yeah. um, you know, give them an opportunity You're to... You're allowed um, to feel whatever you feel. No feeling <laughs> is final and no feeling is wrong. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know about that, but go ahead. <laughs> um, I am... My son, Jack, and I, he's 16... Or just, he's actually turning 17 while we're gone. And nice. we are going to Greece on Wednesdays, which I think that is, we'll already be there by the time this episode drops. Yeah, by the time this episode drops, yeah. So you'll, yeah. you'll have been there for a while. Yes. So I bring that up because one, that's amazing. Heidi gets to go know, to Greece. So, so we're going to be hearing all about that. But also because we are recording this uh, a couple of days earlier than normal. Uh, sometimes I try to keep an eye out for questions people might have asked or topics of conversation that are showing up in various forms online and maybe address them in, in conversations on the books, especially as we get deeper into it. But because we're recording a little early, there hasn't been, I mean, the episode for this week went up a couple hours ago. So, so there hasn't really been time for people to, you know, get caught up and have their questions and and thus there's not been time to have your questions answered. So uh, hopefully we will, despite that, manage to answer some of them. But as I said, we're going to talk about um, chapters 9 through 13. And in this section, we get a lot of interiority. We get, we get a lot of time with uh, our two main male characters. We get Chillingsworth and Dimsdale and their budding friendship of sorts. And uh, you know, dark the darkness that is that friendship. We get um, a lot on Dimsdale's... Um, mental and spiritual state we ultimately find him in the same place where hester started the book uh standing on the scaffold i suppose where she ends up appearing as well as a number of other characters do including um a witch type character that shows up i believe in other hawthorne work we can talk about that if we need to um and then in the end we we turn back to hester and we hear about how she has changed in the seven years since the book started so Hawthorne has covered a lot of ground and he's covering a lot of inner life by describing, a, you know, he's just kind of summarizing a lot of what's happening and then he's giving us some some uh, interesting but kind of drama-less scenes in my opinion where he kind of is just kind of laying out what's going on. This is, it seems like a very transitional part of the book. Um, so I'm giving this preamble to my question here to kind of set the stage for people who, are, you know, are reading along with us and, and uh, but maybe are at a different spot. And Karen, you ask, I believe this question is in your questions for chapter nine. And that chapter I think is called the leech. And you ask why this chapter is called the leech. You know, it's a great conversation question to ask. Um, we can talk about that if we want. But one of the things I was thinking about is how the chapter headings, and you alluded to this last week, Karen, the chapter titles and the character names do a lot of work for us as readers. They're summary times, they're telling us what to think at other times, they're 
reminding us who's who at other times. Um, and so I got to thinking, what, how would this book be different? What would the, well, maybe not even the experience, but how would this book be different? Would it be better or worse if the character names and chapter headings were not so direct and on the nose and doing as much work as they are? Karen, I'm curious what you think about this question. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. And I I mean, I think as ambiguous as this work is intentionally so, as, as we've talked about how um, Hawthorne just constantly refuses to say whether something really happened or something, you know, says something could have happened or it could have been this way. I mean, he's he, this is part of how he writes the novel. And so if we didn't have these symbolic names and these very pointed titles in the chapter, um, I think we'd really be at even greater of a loss. Um, and, and again, it's important to point out that a lot of this ambiguity, I mean, for some, the difficulty in reading this book is is at least twofold. It is the intentional ambiguity and the sort of symbolism and the, the poetic style and the, the mode of the tale that we've talked about um, that, that were true when Hawthorne was writing this for his contemporary audience. And, and then for us, we have added on the fact that you know, it's it's a book from the 19th century and its language and themes are somewhat um, unfamiliar to us. And so it's even more difficult. But most of the difficulty, I think, was already there at the time when Hawthorne was writing. And so I think these the symbolic names, the, the chapters of the title uh, of the the titles of the chapters are helpful. I mean, even you know, chapter nine is the leech. And then chapter 10 is the leech and his patient. I mean, so it just is, is they're very helpful in pointing us toward um, what we're supposed to be looking at and all, and the relationships and even um, interpretations. I mean, for Hawthorne to call um, Chillingworth a leech tells us a lot. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So can I, can I, I'm going to ask a question that, okay, I'll just ask it. Is this a flaw? In the actual narrative drive of the book and Hawth Hawthorne's ability to tell the story, does he rely on those too much? If we didn't have those, would we still be able to gather or glean the same impressions that we do when he gives us names and chapter headings that are as direct and on the nose as, as, as he does? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that they are helpful, as I said. Um, I think we could still come up with, you know, maybe an idea like the leech, um, sure. even if it wasn't that word. But I also, sure, you sure. know, I also want to say this sort of um, glossalia that is typical of 19th century work and earlier works. I mean, I've, I've been I'm writing a little something talking about Pilgr the Pilgrim's Progress right now. Mm. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, the Pilgrim, the original, if you read the, there's so many versions of the Pilgrim's Progress, but the actual real um, edition yeah. of it has, yeah. has, you know, these little commentaries on the side um, mm -hmm. that summarize and point us to what's being said. This is, so this is a very 17th, 18th, 19th century <laughs> mode um, people so have I, been enjoying I, it <laughs> yeah yeah I, and so i can't call it a flaw it's just something sure. maybe it's dated but um and we don't do that anymore but unless you're like david foster wallace or something he does it in his own way yeah. i guess <laughs> yeah, that's true <laughs> um heidi what do you think about this does it i don't want to say it does it bother you but just does mm. it how, how does how's your experience with it and i'm not saying like because this is it does this it's it's wrong. I'm just wondering about, he, he seems to rely on the, these 
these things a lot. And I'm wondering how that, how that plays for you. Yeah. So usually David, the way this goes down between you and me, when we have these conversations is David has like a certain style. that's not his favorite and I defend it. Right. Like that's usually the, the, that's usually the dynamic. I'm not even right? trying to be critical here. I'm just trying to think. However, you know, I, you and I are completely on the, I think we're on the same page on this. I think it takes us out of the story a bit. I don't mind the chapter titles so much, but the chapter titles go along with another formal choice that Hawthorne makes, which is to give us, like, this is a morality tale, right? And and he tells us the moral of the story as the story goes. And that, for me, takes me right out of the story. Um, and and mean, I think he does Would you that. say he's just being too preachy? I think times? he's that preachy. That's what takes... Oh, yeah, okay. and like I said, I, I haven't read this book since high school, so I didn't have any opinion heading in. Um, as I've said many times over the last couple of weeks, I'm crazy about Hawthorne as a short story writer. And mm-hmm. in that, he doesn't do it as much. But in this one, he really is trying to tell us something and he is missing zero opportunities to <laughs> interpret the story for us within the story. And so- I wish he didn't do it so much. Um, at One thing that that Karen just alluded to and, um, and is an expert in the English novel, um, this is this is pretty early-ish and the form is very different than what we're mm-hmm. looking at today. Um, but even for its time, um, if you're comparing it to somebody like Hardy, right? Um, Hardy does this, but not quite as much as Hawthorne. And and it it does, it kind of like annoys me a lot, actually, as I'm <laughs> reading it. I'm like, this is a story that tells itself. Like, I get it. So... There's many, if I were editing this book, there's a lot of things I would take out and just let the story and the characters carry the weight rather than the narrative voice, um, the author interpreting for us. But that, again, maybe that's a preference. Maybe it's a flaw. So, Karen, I mean, who are we to criticize a book that's been around this long and has um, the reputation that this book does? I mean, like this is part of... I know this is a complicated idea, but it's essentially part of the, the canon of American Lit. The, it's, a, it's a book that matters. Do you think that our response, like that Heidi and I are having, where this kind of, we feel like it kind of, I think I think her phrase, it kind of feels like it takes us out of the narrative. It takes us away from like the emotional stakes of the book, kind of intellectualizing it too much, at least that's how I would put it. Do you think that that is a, um, it's just a function of what we normally read or is it that we are not allowing, are we actually not allowing the book to be what it is? Because that's something we talk about all the time on this show. Like what kind of book is a book trying to be? What does it want to be? We that's, You have to understand that the on book its on its own terms. own terms first. So in responding this way to the book, are we not allowing it to do that? Or is it, are the questions that we're asking here justified? Good question. Yeah, no, I, I, I you think could be critical of us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think um, that's why last time I talked about this being a tale. It's a long mm-hmm. tale. Um, we think of it as a novel, and in some ways it is, but even the, you know, the, the genre of novel varies so much from its very beginnings until yeah. till now. Um, so it's, it's not 
modern literature, right? I mean, it's it, it, strictly speaking, if we think, you know, if modern literature begins more toward the end of the of uh, the 18th century, even even Hardy is not quite modern in in that in that sense. So, I mean, we could say that we could say, oh, you know, that the Odyssey would move so much faster if it would just not be written in poetry or something, <laughs> right? It would just sure. so so. Um, I think it's just it's a t- it's again a different time um and so the form and the mode and the language reflect that different time and that's what makes it challenging to us um i mean i'm also reading and and i i uh yeah this is a, i hesitate to say it's taking me a long time i'm reading moby dick um mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know if i mentioned a girl <laughs> yeah i mean i was supposed to read it in college and i didn't instead i started studying british literature um <laughs> And, you know, it does the same thing. Of course, you know, uh, Melville and uh, Hawthorne were great um, admirers yeah. of one another. And, but, Mel, you know, I mean, Moby Dick does this. I, I'm really super thankful for those chapter titles because Moby Dick is a real slog. Um, <laughs> and and the, the short chapter with the with the titles is like, okay, this is what this chapter is about. It's about, and in and, and that way, it, it is almost, it's even a more episodic novel in that sense. At least this one I think that I think the story moves along better and is and each section is more interrelated and more whole. Um, mm. So this this is the challenge of reading of reading literature of other times. Um, and I think that's just what we have to accept it for what it is. But also we can it's OK to say, hey, wow, you know. The novels come a long way, and I really like, you know, mo- you know, current contemporary novels. But that's perfectly fine um, to say and to think. Um, and it's actually better, I think, to to think about these things. Um, yeah. The things that have stuck out st- stuck out to me stood out to me is uh, you know you look at like say Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen wrote that book what forty years before this. Was that 1813, 1812, something like that? And this is 1850. And so, but Austin doesn't do things like that. And is that because she is trying to, is she is not trying to, look, I mean, we don't need to compare Austin with anybody, right? That's not fair. But um, comparing t- two authors that managed to stand out over the course of centuries is, is I think, at least worth, worth doing to some degree. Is she, does she not do things like that? Or does he do things like this because he is trying to really express some kind of moral vision and he feels like he has to, he has to lean into these chapter headings and the names and things like that because he feels like without that, it's not going to be, he's not going to be able to capture or, or represent that moral vision clearly enough. Whereas maybe Austin, while she's satirizing, she's writing satire she's not necessarily trying to maybe maybe she isn't as worried about making sure that people come away from the book thinking a certain thing um yeah would you- no no that's a uh, can i i'm, I'm like i'm yeah, yeah, yeah can't wait to answer no yeah. uh, so i mean satire when it's done right and well is moral it is trying to to True. you know make a moral change um to correct um, vice or folly, but it does through does so through indirection, and so by its very nature, it's going to be mm. indirect um, and not as straightforward and earnest as this kind of tale that we have with Hawthorne, who's being very 
earnest in his morality. I mean, he may he may be in tension with his Puritan history and and its legacy in his this new country, relatively new country. Um, but he's still very earnest and straightforward. So he's he's being what he is, and Austin's being what what she is, and writing accordingly. Um, so yeah. So this brings us to at least reminds me of another question that I had, which is as he's creating this he's he's responding to to the the world that his family came from um the the repercussions of puritanism in the culture and with his family and all, and all those sorts of things he is certainly criticizing that to some degree he's he's trying to get to the bottom of it it seems like and we've talked about this already but as he does that is he offering some sort of alternative spiritual vision uh, that can in response to that if he's being critical of puritanism what's what's his alternative do you think you know he makes dimsdale kind of a noble character but also a very fraught character um and hester heroic in her own way and so if he's telling a mora- if he's offering a morality tale of sorts then then what is the spiritual vision that he has that can replace the one that he's critiquing is like at this point in the book do we see that starting to coalesce at all because in this section we're getting spiritual visions and dark nights of the soul and potential questions about demonic possession and demons and satan and angels and signs in the sky and all these things that could come from you know the old testament or greek mythology or any book of religion you know religious tales um, Heidi, I want to let you go first on that if you want to, and then we'll let Karen correct you. For sure. I appreciate <laughs> that because I don't know. I think that me, there's a couple of um, authors in the tradition that I think their books open up with some biographical criticism, although I don't usually start with biographical criticism. Uh, and we've talked about that on the show quite a bit. I think Hawthorne's one of them. Like knowing that he was part of the transcendentalist circle is sheds a lot of light on, um, on his, uh, on a potential spiritual perspective. But this is a book about a bunch of people who are lost uh, within, and I don't mean that, I don't mean like their souls are lost. I, I mean that in the, like the, the Dante sense of loss, like in the middle of my life, I found myself in a dark wood. Like they have found themselves in a dark wood sometimes, you know, and often very literally that they don't know, like they have been given a, a version of Christianity that is insufficient to the darkness that they are encountering. And it create that is the problem of the novel. The problem of the novel isn't the scarlet letter, isn't Hester's sin, right? It isn't the adultery. Uh, it is the fact that they are given a version of Christianity that that cannot adequately answer, grapple, comfort, transfigure their lives. Uh uh, as they encounter this darkness and and Hawthorne's raising the question, is the darkness coming from within or without? Uh, and what do we do about it? And and up till now, I don't think he has given an answer to the problem as much as he's exploring the problem. Um, and one of the things that having having now critiqued, given my critique, um, one of the reasons I even 
find myself critiquing the novel is because it's such a good idea. Like it's so, it's so compelling of the American experience that the, um, the Puritan experience, the, uh, and the spiritual wrestling is so relevant even now. Um, and, and when he stays in the tension of that, I think he's at his best. I think chapter 12 is really good, like brilliantly written, even the minister's vigil um, because of that. So to answer to answer your question, I don't think yet in the novel, we have a version of the spiritual life that actually does provide a way forward spiritually um, or practically in action or contemplation for our characters. Karen, do you agree with that? I completely agree. And I think you put it so well when you talked about how the version of Christianity that Hawthorne has inherited and even, you know, his fellow Americans, I guess, uh, was just simply not adequate. I mean, I think I say in the introduction, I use the phrase, um, you know, Hawthorne is kind of spiritual, but not religious. Um, And another, you know, in talking about this, I mean, he's sort of an ex-evangelical, right, of of the Puritan uh, variety. And I I say that, you know, yes. He's deconstructing. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 deconstructing. Exactly. And he doesn't have the answer. Uh, I don't think any I don't even think by the time we get to the end of the of the novel. um, But he is exposing some of the problem. And, you know, that's not just okay, it's good. Um, And I mean, now that this part of the conversation has come up and I'm thinking about it in these terms, um, there are a lot of parallels, I think, between deconstruction and evangelicalism. And in particular, um, and I I wrote about this when the book came out last year or whenever it was um, in the Dallas Morning News. Um, I mean, this novel is about clergy sexual abuse. in the in what we read last time, I don't think we looked at it, but at the governor's hall, there's that moment when Hester says she's appealing um, to Dimsdale to defend her, and he and he says, you, you know, you were basically you were my pastor, you knew me better than anyone else, and that's the the essence of of clergy sexual abuse is that there, it's not just any old, it's a power differential, but not just any old power differential, it's a spiritual authority that a pastor has over a woman that is taken advantage of and, and betrayed um, when that turns into an inappropriate sexual relationship. And so, so that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of what's behind. Uh, there are other things too, but that's one main impetus behind the deconstruction and evangelical movement now. And, and I would say people in the midst of that don't have the answers. Um mm. Or, or aren't seeing them yet, um, but they are seeing a lot of problems um, that we do need to see. Uh, and I think that's that's the start. What do you think then of the book in this middle section, turning away from Hester and orienting towards Dimsdale and Chillingsworth? It seems Chillingsworth becomes more chilling and uh, Dimsdale becomes more... He tries to uh, internally dim. Yeah, but also like show us how he's suffering, and I think he's trying to humanize him in some ways for his suffering, and in that way, you know, he his his spiritual warfare is both sort of it's respected by all the people around him, but then Hawthorne kind of seems to wonder about it's the veracity of it and and all that and what it what is actually going on with his soul. Um, but he, but we're turning away 
from the character who has been our who who you would kind of I've I've forgotten having not read it in so many years how little she's actually in the book up to this point. Like you would think she's in it almost every chapter, but that's not been the case so far. Um, so what what do you think of that? Like, do you think that? What do you think of that? I'm not going to give you options. <laughs> Yeah, oh no, I'll, I'll jump in. It's a, it's a great question. Actually, it's a really good question. And we have alluded maybe in the last episode to some of the similarities that this work has um, with Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Um, and in both of these works, we have male authors who do give sensitive, sympathetic, empathetic treatment to the main female characters but in many ways the stories are not about the women they are about the men and i think you just pointed that out very well david um in this case though i think i I think i think hawthorne does a better job thinking about the female character and and portraying her in a human way in a more complicated way than hardy does um but if you know this novel is about the scarlet letter so in that way, it's about the letter, uh, the scarlet letter that all of the main characters bear. Hester is one of them, but we also, um, you know, there's also the the symbolic letter that um, Dimsdale bears and the effect that his unconfessed sin and guilt has on him. Um, so, so I don't feel um, shortchanged, I guess, in the lack of attention to Hester in in these chapters, I think that Hawthorne is actually talking about what the novel is supposed to talk about, which is about the, the effects of um, of sin and guilt and the difference when that sin and guilt are confessed um, openly and 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 punished, and when those when that sin and that guilt is. is is not publicly acknowledged or even, even in a personal, even not even between Dimsdale and um, Chillingworth. It's still Dimsdale's deep, dark secret that he bears alone and it's literally killing him. Hmm. I think that's right. I, I completely agree. Um, I also find it really interesting what Hawthorne chooses to leave ambiguous in the story and what he chooses to as as I you know critiqued before over tell us about right <laughs> um and one of the things that he is I think oddly and I I personally think this is great like I like this a lot is he doesn't tell us anything about how um Dimsdale and Hester feel about each other that they he tells us about what they feel about their sin right and their their reaction to it and all of the complications that come with that what is their conscience what's coming from society what is actually from the devil what is from god like those kind of converging of competing and uh, force and overlapping forces about the adultery itself is like very much explored um but not really what they feel or think or how they respond to each other on a very human and relational level. I think that's kind of brilliant um, and psychologically consistent and compelling um, and, and very modern. <laughs> um, and I would, that's one of those things I'd be like, 
interested to sit down and ask him about like, Hey, Hey, why didn't you explore this part of their relationship? Um, but I think it works because there's enough within the story that, um, that can, um, I guess provide enough ambivalence to be a bit haunting when you're not reading it, even though he's kind of morally telling us what to think about other things. And even though those narrative choices on the part of the author are interesting to me. Okay, so we have probably 15 minutes here. We're not going to go quite as long as we sometimes do. Um, what do we want to see here? I've got a list of things we could talk about. And of course, Karen's got lists of things we could talk about by having questions at the end of every chapter. Do we want to talk about Pearl on the, you know, in, in chapter 12? Or do we want to talk about, you know, I got, you know what, let's talk about that whole scene. Because we have Pearl, we've got Hester, we've got Chillingsworth, we've got a variety of other characters that kind of walk past. Uh, and we have our, the, what is it, was it a shooting star or a meteor or something like that? And an A it, in the sky. Right? Yeah. Uh, which the ministers claimed, which was for an angel for the, for the, who was, who was it that died? The governor, Governor Winthrop. Mm-hmm. Um, who is a real historical person and a very important person in Puritan culture. So that's yeah. an interesting choice to put in there. What do you, what is Hawthorne going for? Do you think in sort of merging the natural and the supernatural? I think Karen, you maybe even had a question about that. The end of 12. Oh, you mentioned the, the, the intensity of the setting mm-hmm. here. Um, the, with the details concerning light and dark should be another one of those great essay questions for a, for someone who's teaching it. Um, and you mentioned the culminating light in the scene is the mysterious flash in the sky. How is it described in both natural and supernatural terms? And I think thinking about the, that, the, the coalescing of natural and supernatural and the way he is very direct about it. He is saying that there is a relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, is he, when he brings that up, is he bringing up the, the relationship between the natural and the supernatural as a corrective to a Puritan theology or is he, or how, what's the purpose of that? Do you think we talked about his, uh, what was, did we say it was the phen- phenomenology or uh, phenomenological? Did I get that right? <laughs> I can never, never, never remember how many vowels are actually in the word. Does that seems like it's connected to this question, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, it's such a, it, I mean, yeah, let me just back up a little bit because this chapter is so important and so central. Um, and I think, I mean, it's, it's, it matters that this is essentially like the middle chapter, right? Mm-hmm. There are tw- 24 chapters. This is chapter 12. Um, so it's the middle of the book. It, it's really kind of the, you know, it's, it's the climax of the story. Um, because we have, you know, we have on, on the scaffold, we have, speaking of natural and supernatural, we have the natural family joined together, you know, in 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 the center of, of town, in the public square, joined together in a way that they had not been before, you know, Hester, Pearl, um, and Dimsdale, but the way that, you know, they had not been physically, publicly, um, openly, and here they are finally together the way that they are 
you know, naturally they are supposed to be, um, but it's in, it's in darkness. It's in, in, well, they think secret. Um, and so, and it's such a, it's such a dramatic scene. I mean, it's not just like, you know, they were together in the governor's hall and, and Pearl, you know, had this interaction with Dimsdale, which, you know, which was moving and, um, and resonant, but this scene puts everything, everything together. The, you know, it's, it's a natural representation of their actual relationship or what it, you know, in natural terms, um, it's on a scaffold, it's in dark, it's with this sort of supernatural um, event in the sky. Um, and it, yeah, it, it all comes together here. But um, in terms of your question, what is Hawthorne? Do- I mean, I, you know, again, I think that the, that the reputation this work has most strongly as it tends to be taught in schools is, and that we remember it is, is for its anti-Puritanism, which that's there. But as Heidi reminded us earlier, um, Hawthorne wasn't a transcendentalist himself, but he was immersed in this community. He's not denying the supernatural. Mm-hmm. He's he's offering a number of possible explanations. He's looking at something phenomenologically and saying, you know, this is one explanation. This is what some people could see. This is what others could see. Mm-hmm. He's not telling us how to interpret it. Um, and in that way, I mean, I just, you know, I, I wrote an essay talking about this um, about a week ago. In, in that way, it's kind of like the way we interpret this is is um, is the way that people could or might not interpret the synax of the prophets in the Old Testament, right? Here's something that's happening. It's weird. It's bizarre. And we can choose to ignore what God has to teach us through it. Um, and we can just you know, explain it away, um, or we can see the, the spiritual um, significance in it. Uh, and Hawthorne's just kind of leaving it up to us, I think, and just just showing how differently uh, we might interpret these things, mm-hmm. which is very modern. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's also, he was writing at a time in which realist literature was really uh like prevalent is that right karen um or is he a little bit active? yes no i mean depending on your definition yes yes small r realism yeah okay um and he seems to be to your point about the phenomenology here he he seems to be saying okay so what what is really real is the perceptions of the heart, right? Uh, What Dimsdale is going through internally is more indicative of his, of the reality of his identity than what other people are seeing from the outside, right? So there's- And in that sense, I just want to enjoy, it's more real. Right. Yes, exactly. And, um, and, and so- Hawthorne's continually making narrative choices that point the reader inward, right? Underneath the surface of things, underneath the perception of things. However, it's complicated because behind Dimsdale's, because Dimsdale isn't, we we can tell his that by his name even that he is perceiving things dimly, right? He he isn't right all the time. He is not getting everything right. Neither is Hester. Neither is Chillingworth. 
neither is Pearl, neither are any of the other characters. And we're not exactly sure what the reality even is. And this is your point about phenomenology, right? That there's this disconnect between perception and reality. Uh, And and Hawthorne is continually forcing us to see the uh, underneath the surface of things, which actually becomes more ambiguous until he starts to remind us, give us the morality tale, which is why I get annoyed with it. Because just when I'm like, ah, this is so interesting how he's (laughs) continually pointing us to all of these ambiguities, and then he'll just tell us what to think. And then I'm like, come on. But (laughs) so anyway, I think your point is exactly right. Like, and and the David, your question about the intentional choice to bring in the uh, supernatural is all a part of that because the supernatural signs end up, end up actually making the story a little more ambiguous rather than clarifying. And your all important mm-hmm. comment about the scarlet A in the sky being interpreted by some characters to mean angel and the death of Winthrop and other characters to mean adultery to reflect the scarlet letter the, those supernatural impositions from the world beyond actually cloud the issues. They don't clarify them. And that's interesting. But so do the such lines as walking in the shadow of a dream, as it were, and perhaps actually under the influence of a species of somnambulism. Perhaps. Mr. Dinsdale reached the spot where now so long since Hester Prynne had, had lived through her first hours of so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of this chapter, where these supernatural things seem to be happening, and the continuation of this dark night mm-hmm. of the soul thing that's going on with him, it also might be a dream. Is kind of what he's. It seems like. I mean, he's 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 alluding. He's suggesting that there is a dream dreaminess to it, not dreaminess like Ryan Gosling, but like you know, a dream, a sort of nightmare suggested nightmare or lack of uh you know surety or you know you is he gonna wake up and realize it was all just a vision and what does that mean and um so is he trying to obscure the meaning when he does that again is he trying to obscure uh to to sort of gray the experience that dimzel is having is he trying to say something about spirit blood dark nights of the soul <laughs> I mean, when he does that, what do you think? Well, I mean, he's doing all that you said to sort of set it up as though, is it a dream or is it, you know, is this reality? I, I mean, never mind. There's a song that came to mind. Okay, thank you. Um, but then at the end of this chapter, the next day, I mean, there there are real signs that this happened. Um, first of all, uh, now this this could be just a, a phenomenological effect, but I, and I th- think this is so this is just so brilliant. Dimsdale preaches a discourse which is held up to be the richest and most powerful, the replete and most replete with heavenly influences. So like the next day he like preaches his best sermon ever. But also the sexton finds his glove. Like, you know, this, I mean, this could be like, it's been a long time since I've seen seen the matrix, but I don't, I don't know, like maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but like at the, yeah, there's some tangible sign at the end of something actually happening, even if we aren't sure what it was. Um, But there's, you know, there's the glove is there. I mean, there. So is he just trying to suggest that, is he basically trying to say as Dimsdale went out that night, he was in a dream state. Oh, and that's everything that happened on the scaffold 
did or just as, whatever. Right. Well, I'm not even suggesting that he's saying that maybe it didn't happen, but is it just sort of meant to to explain the state that his mind is in as he goes out, or is he? I mean, he's obviously dropping that in there on purpose. Right. Well, again, I think the most important thing in the in all in the entire story um, is the effect that these things have on us. So whether or not, you know, if, Dim- if Dimsdale goes out and maybe the whole scene on the on the scaffold didn't happen, if he dreamed it, it still changed him, which I, sure. I, I mean, I do think it really happened, but it yeah. still changed him the next day. It, it, it has an effect on him, just like his unrepentant, unconfessed sin has an effect on him, a real life effect on him. And that's what Hawthorne, I think, keeps trying to say over and over. These things have real effects on our lives but that's not a particularly anti-puritan stance right that the sins that we commit are terrible (laughs) don't do it um so so where is the line do you think for him where's the dividing line between puritanism as a moral vision for the world that is valuable and puritanism as puritanism as problematic and let's end with this question and we can maybe, maybe it's something we need to think about for the rest of the book, but. Well, this is a, I mean, this is the recurring answer. It's just as true today and people like to dismiss its significance. But I think, I mean, I think the ho- trouble Hawthorne has with Puritanism is the hypocrisy, you know? And I think that's a lot of the trouble that people today have with the church is the hypocrisy and it's always going to be a problem. And, and, um, and we need to, you know, we need to recognize that, I think. So, yeah. That's right. And I mean, nobody's going to be surprised at what I say, which is, I think he is bringing up the insufficient uh, comfort of duty over desire, right? That that within, within Puritanism, it is toe the line, right? It is any kind of delight is suspect um, and desire is not to be trusted. It's not a potent force that can lead you to God, which is what true Christianity teaches. That is what Christ teaches, right? Um, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Um, And this, this book highlights the division. It dwells in that toxic denial of desire that what that is systemic within an entire culture that claims to represent Christ and yet suppresses a vital part of our humanity that is intended to draw us to God. Um, does it so that goes back to my question then does the book offer a compelling a, counter the, a compelling counter vision that involves Not or that, yet. that that is the that is duty mm, and desire properly right. Order. Not yet, not so far. It just, it it is a, so far the book is a compassionate exploration uh, and indictment of a duty-driven or a solely duty-driven life. Although I think because it is Hawthorne and he is preachy, he does consider <laughs> a, um, he does, he 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 has a compelling vision of what the, or, I don't know if I want to say that I'm going to take that back. He seems to have a an internal belief in a moral vision 
what that explicitly is and how that relates to the Christian faith at this point is unclear because he's only given us one vision of the Christian faith, which is Puritanism. And he's exploring how that is insufficient to human uh to human sin, sickness, and suffering, right? Um, and he's yeah. right about that. Um, and that's kind of where we're at right now. And to be uh, fair, he's yeah. he's writing about a place where that, like the reason for existence was to promote and live within that particular iteration of Christianity, right? They left right. and came to New England explicitly to be Puritan. City on a hill, right? Yeah. To so, live this dutiful <clears throat> life and to follow the law of God in its external forms, but not at the external forms that have anything to do with Catholicism. Right. right? So, okay. So let me ask this though, before we go, we have a lot of listeners who, who are evangelical of a whole bunch of different, with different versions of evangelicalism within that denominations and so forth, who have a lot of respect for Puritans. I see it every day in our bookstore. People come in and they buy books by Puritans, um, books that are hundreds of years old now. When we talk about this book being critical of the Puritans, do we do? Uh, is the problem Puritanism or is the problem like how would you respond to people who say, "Well, I don't know. I think the Puritans had kind of were on to something." Um, now I know we could that that's a huge conversation um, that this podcast is not equipped um, or set up to to take on. There's a lot of other podcasts and YouTube videos online. That you can, you can dig into that if you want, but Karen, how would you respond to someone who's saying, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've been reading a, a lot of these writers have really helped my spiritual journey, or I have a lot of respect for what they're saying. And yet this book is really kind of going after their, 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 their mode of faith. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I'm an evangelical and I'm all about like critiquing the evangelical house, right? So, um, so, uh, you know, if there are, you know, there are these, these movements, whether it's, you know, the entire Reformation or evangelicalism or Puritanism, um, they bring great gifts. And the greater the gift, the more possibility there is for um, some error or weakness or distortion um, to enter in. And um, if it's a great gift, then we want to, you know, to protect that gift by, um, by trying to make it as, um, as uh, strong and, and complete as possible. Um, so that, that would be my answer. I mean, I, you know, I think self-criticism is, is, you know, is, is what makes life worth living. The unexamined life isn't worth living as someone more, thoughtful than I said but I do want to say I just need to work this in yeah. I want to read something Heidi writes called the duty driven life so I just, <laughs> <laughs> that, that phrase that is beautiful <laughs> um I am I I think that there's got to be a compelling a very compelling difference that I don't know because I am didn't live in that time there is probably a disconnect between the Puritanism that Hawthorne is portraying in this novel and Puritanism as it was actually lived out in the real world and in the historical uh, life. And so I, in my critique of Puritanism, I am doing it from within the novel, accepting it on Hawthorne's terms um, and, and saying the, the Puritanism of this novel is as flawed <laughs> as Hawthorne is presenting. How that worked out in historical life, I don't know. 
Uh, and it's a different I wouldn't book. exact. I wouldn't presume that they're the same, right? The same way we read, say, Macbeth, and we know that uh, that Shakespeare's version, or Julius Caesar's better example, Shakespeare's version of of Julius Caesar's life and his Rome is different from the Rome of of history. And yet it is a great uh, book that we accept on its own terms. And so in my, my critique of Puritanism is Hawthorne's version of it. Well, let's wrap it up there. You got to go to Greece. Yeah. Actually, when do you leave? Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Okay. Coming up. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? You packed? Um, I am going to be ready. I have everything planned in order to be ready, but I certainly am not ready right now. <laughs> Well, Karen, thank you for for uh, doing this, and uh, Heidi, thank you for uh, you know both of you had to reschedule, so uh, we we had to get an episode in with both Karen and Heidi before Heidi you know ended up across the world. So, well, everybody uh, was for- very gracious with my messing up our our regular schedule, which with three high functioning adult humans with a life is a <laughs> you know that that's a feat. So, thank you. Yeah, just getting it's it's hard enough just getting the regular day. I know to, to happen, right? Well, yeah, Karen, thank you, thank you for adjusting, and uh, Heidi, thanks for being flexible too. All right, well, Karen, any final thoughts before we go? Uh, no, just uh, this. I mean, this discussion is. I thought last week's was so excellent, and like this one is even better. So, thank you guys. <laughs> this has been great. So. Yeah. It's been fun. Thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll have to keep doing these. We'll have to, maybe we'll do Heart of Darkness or something next year because you we still we haven't done that one on the show yet. So we'll, we'll talk about that in the future though. So, all right. Well, for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.